Hey, Jose, you've never won at the MX, have you? You're no special one. At best, you're a garden variety one. And I wouldn't expect any of those trends to change now. Because guess what? The Harry Kane ankle saga continues. Hey, some truths in life just don't surprise you anymore. The graying of the old gunner's hair, for example. The promiscuous relationship between Southgate and Eric Dyer. Daniel Levy prioritizing spit-shining Roger Goodell's shoes over the Spurs fan. And Harry Kane having shite ankles. It's just too bad he's directly responsible for contributing to something like 70% of your goals. Yeah, it'll be another clean sheet for the Albion. Have it. Alright, alright. Yes, get in. Have it. Up the Albion. Brighton and Banter, my name is Max. We've got a packed show for you all today. We're going to do a complete breakdown of the Fulham result. Look ahead to tomorrow's fixture against Tottenham. Talk some team news. Where the hell is Moises Caicedo? And we'll finish up with some discussion about Frank Lampard and the joke that is Chelsea Football Club. But there's only one place to start, and that's Wednesday's nil-nil result against Fulham at the Amex. Whoa, stop the presses. Tell me if you've heard this one before. Brighton completely dominate the game. Very stout. Defensively, completely on the midfield. Playing through the turrets. Making Scott Parker look silly. Missing every chance we create, regardless of situation on the pitch. And then having it nearly come back to haunt us at the end. Good grief, where would we be without Lewis Dunk? I mean, it genuinely seems like Brighton's finishing gets worse every game, and (laughs) how is that even possible? I mean, good riddance. That was shocking play in the final third. Well, the play in the final third was was genius. The build-up play was fantastic, but the finishing, oh my goodness. I mean, Areola wasn't even that good. I mean, he made some okay saves, but he didn't have to do anything. It wasn't like he was standing on his head. I mean, this is just, yeah, this is just getting ridiculous. And the most depressing part of it all is that Scott Parker's team sucks, and we've drawn with them twice. Fulham have no chance to stay up unless one of the other teams, not Brighton, completely capitulate in the back half of the season. Now, defensively, I thought Brighton were outstanding. Again. Now, I I know Fulham aren't particularly fluid in the attack, but they were completely suffocated by Brighton's defensive system. And the back line of Ben White, Lewis Dunk, and Adam Webster is the most dynamic back line that Potter can put out. Robert Sanchez didn't have anything to do. I thought March and Veltman could control things well on the outside. Gross and Basuma really dominated the midfield. And again, Fulham were just completely suffocated by Brighton defensively. Everyone was very tidy in possession. And because Brighton really don't play with a true striker, often our front three will drop a little deeper. And in this case, it was McAllister, Mope, and Trossard. And then suddenly it becomes like a midfield five with two wingbacks. And numerically, it's completely overwhelming for the opposing midfield. And this allows Brighton to get a lot of little one-twos going, a lot of little triangle plays going, and really play through the turrets extremely efficiently. And this was on full display on Wednesday against Fulham. And that is Potterball. That is the definition of Potterball, being extremely fluid and dynamic in possession with literally everybody. And then having this group of seven players 
talking about the two wingbacks, the two midfielders, and the three front players, who are almost interchangeable and constantly overlapping as they move up and down the pitch with the ball, creating little numerical advantages all over the pitch. And it's effective. It's extremely effective. And if any of Brighton's players had even the slightest bit of composure in front of goal, Brighton would be much, much higher in the table. I'm talking a legitimate top 10 side. But once again, despite bossing the game, Brighton were unable to convert their chances. And so here we are. Now, I don't know what to do about Neil Mope and Leandro Trossard. And I don't think Graham Potter does either. I mean, if we just think about the chances that they've been missing, not just in this Fulham game, but in the last several games, well, really all season, it's just not good enough. One goal, three assists for Leandro Trossard in 17 appearances. And think about the chances that he's had one goal and three assists in 17 appearances. That sucks. That is not good enough. Neil Mope, seven goals, one assist in 18 appearances. Of course, three of those seven goals are penalties. Think about the chances that he's had. Think about the chances that he just had in the Fulham game. He should have had seven in the Fulham game. That sucks. That's not good enough. And when I just think objectively about their performance, just on a results-based manner, I think there's no way that these two players should be able to keep their place in the team. The problem is the two of them are so damn good at playing Potterball. And when they don't play, Brighton just don't create as many great goal-scoring chances. They just don't. So in that respect, I don't blame Graham Potter for continuing to play them. Now, with Aaron Connolly coming back, can he be just as good in possession, but be more clinical in front of goal? Maybe, but he hasn't really shown that. Can can Andy Zakiri be just as good in a playmaking role, but be more clinical in front of goal? Maybe, but he's not there yet. Can Percy Tao be just as good in possession, but be more clinical in front of goal than Leandro Trussard? Maybe, but we haven't really seen that yet either. So while Graham Potter got hammered for only making one substitution in the entire game, and we'll get to that later, what do you want the man to do? It's not like Brighton are loaded with clinical finishers on the bench. And frankly, I wouldn't have made any changes either. Why? Because you have to believe, if you're the manager, that if your team keeps consistently creating these chances, that at some point over 90 minutes, you're going to score. That's the only way you can think about it. And in this case, it didn't happen. But I would have been reluctant to change the system. I would have been reluctant to change the personnel when the team on the pitch was playing so well and creating so many chances They were bound to score, but they didn't. So this is the crossroads that Graham Potter faces. And I don't know what he's supposed to do. I really don't. So let's think about the chances that Brighton created in this game. Leandro Trossard on 15 minutes, nine yards out in front of goal under no real pressure, can't find the corner around Areola. Beautiful little cutback by Neil Mopé. Now, should he have passed to Alexis McAllister? Yes, in hindsight, he should have. But you shouldn't need to pass if you're nine yards out, directly in front of goal, under no real pressure. He's got to put that away. That is a grade-A chance. Now, Leandro Trussard again on 17 minutes. This time he has to pass. Mope, great little interception. He slides in Leandro Trussard. Now, Trussard has to either slide in Mope again, or he's got to feed McAllister. But either way, he he can't take the shot there. Brian had a few good... Chances on set pieces throughout the game, nothing more they really could have done there. It would have been nice if Lewis Dunn could have found the corner. And Mope maybe could have passed a couple times. But Mope on 70 minutes 
He has to finish that. That is a brilliant flick by McAllister after a clever decision to take the free kick quickly. He's probably 14 yards out. He has to put that away. He can't find the corner around Arioli. Blasts it over. Now, on 82 minutes, everyone has to score this. I don't care how heroic the defending is. I don't care how many Fulham players are between the ball and the goal. On 82 minutes, a goal mouth scramble. Someone's got to finish this. Sally March, Neil Mope, someone. Someone has to finish these chances. And then I guess if we're talking about chances in the game, shout out to Lewis Dunk. Captain Fantastic has been there every time we've needed him, and he continues to be one of the standout center backs in the Premier League. Now, going back to the whole substitution thing again, I wouldn't have subbed either. Now, I did notice that Jakob Moder made the bench, although Michael Carbonic did not. And I would like to see both of these guys at some point, just because I do think Graham Potter has to make an effort to try to find some combination of players that can be a little bit more clinical in front of goal. And it's not like Solly March and Pascal Gross are really lighting it up. Now, the one substitution that Graham Potter did make, Davey Proper for Alexis McAllister, made no sense whatsoever. I guess it's a slightly more defensive substitution, but there was no reason to make a defensive substitution in that situation because Fulham had nothing. It's not like Brighton were on their heels. I would have kept McAllister on because he was creating the bulk of the chances, and I've taken off Pascal Gross and gone with a little bit more athleticism in the midfield. I would have gone. I would have brought Connolly on maybe if he was ready to go. I would have brought Percy Tao on maybe going to a front four, or I would have brought Adam Lallana on because he's got that extra little bit of quality needed that little bit of composure in the 18-yard box, and maybe he could have created a goal. But just to finish up here, I feel really good about how Brighton are playing defensively right now, and I think the 3-4-1-2 with McAllister in sort of that deeper playmaking role is working brilliantly, and Brighton are creating a lot of chances, but someone's got to heat up in front of goal if Brighton want to pull out from this relegation scrap and enter the mid-table. Now, tomorrow, the Mourinho Circus and Tottenham roll back into town. Mourinho, who hasn't ever won at the MX. And they come off the back of a 3-1 hammering, courtesy of Liverpool, midweek. A game in which they lost Harry Kane. Now, I watched a bit of this game, and Tottenham played okay in the first half, although they didn't create much. But Liverpool just opened the game up a little bit, and Spurs couldn't handle it. They couldn't play the low block, and Liverpool exposed them. Now, we all know that Harry Kane is one of the best strikers in the world, is irreplaceable. But this season, Tottenham missing Harry Kane, I don't see how they can win. And I'm not just saying that as a Brighton fan. Harry Kane has been on another level this year. I mean, he's been dropping a little bit deeper, he's been taking the ball with his back to goal, and he's been bringing Son and Bergwijn in with his passing play. And without that anchor role, I don't see how Jose can play his purely counter-attacking system with this team. Not to mention that with Harry Kane out, some of the victims of Jose's man-management style talking about Deli Alley, Lucas Mora, Gareth Bale, if you want to throw him in there. Some of these players come a little bit more into the limelight, which I'm not sure helps Tottenham on or off the field. So are Tottenham going to come out, be a little bit more expansive, and play a little bit more with the ball? Well, I hope they do, because if they do that, Brighton are going to hammer them. I've watched a little bit of Tottenham this year, and Tottenham defensively, when they're in their low block, when they're in their structure, are quite resilient. They are quite stout. They're difficult to break down. But as soon as they get out of that low block, defensively, they're not all that great. Mostly because the midfield and the back line isn't the most athletic group of players you've ever seen. Plus, the best way to counter Potterball is to play on the counterattack. No pun intended. If you try to match up 
with Graham Potter. If you try to play like Graham Potter plays, Brighton will boss the game. Brighton will create chances. Brighton might not convert any of these chances, but, but they will control the game and defensively at least have very little to worry about. And ultimately, none of this matters because it's Jose and he's too arrogant and too stubborn and it would be too much of a challenge to his conscience to do anything other than keep it tight and play on the counterattack. Now, even though the Tottenham counterattack won't be as fluid without Harry Kane, Graham Potter still has to be careful here because dealing with the counterattack is his greatest weakness. And keeping the counterattack in mind, I believe Graham Potter has to make a few changes to the squad that played so well against Fulham midweek. Now, I've got two ideas. Number one, bring Dan Byrne back into the squad for Pascal Gross. Play back line of Webster, Duncan, Byrne with a midfield of Basuma and White. Coping with the counterattack is all about protecting the back line. And I believe having Ben White and Eve Basuma in the midfield would provide that extra little bit of protection. Now, in terms of system, I believe the 3-4-1-2 the is the system of choice for Graham Potter right now. And I have no problems with that. I think McAllister has done all he can do to keep himself in the squad, aside from scoring goals, which is not really his responsibility. I would bring Aaron Connolly in for Neil Mope because Aaron Connolly does have such fine memories against Tottenham at the Amex. I would also probably bring Percy Tau into the system instead of Leandro Trossard. First of all, I believe Percy Tau can be just as dynamic in a playmaking role as Leandro Trossard. And it'd be hard to be less clinical in front of goal than Trossard has been. So you might as well give Percy Tau a chance. So if Graham Potter does want to go for the 3-4-1-2, I think Dan Byrne comes back into the team with Ben White in the midfield to provide a little bit more protection against the counterattack, and then sub out Leandro Trossard and Neil Mope for Aaron Connolly and Percy Tau. The other idea I have is going to a flat midfield three, playing a 3-5-1-1 or 3-5-2. This was the formation that Graham Potter went with against Arsenal, where he completely flummoxed Mikel Arteta for the first half. This would invite Tottenham to play a little bit more on the ball. This would encourage Tottenham to be a little bit more expansive along the outside. And Potter could sort of trap possession in the midfield and then try to play a quick counterattack game against Tottenham, because again, Tottenham do not have a very athletic back line with the likes of Neil Mope and Aaron Connolly possibly spinning in behind. Now, when Potter did this against Arsenal, I believe he used the midfield three of Ben White, Eve Basuma, and Davy Proper. And while I'm not immediately opposed to that, I believe Jakob Moder for Davy Proper would be a much more dynamic midfield three. A midfield three of Ben White, Jakob Moder, and Davy Proper. In fact, in that case, why even have... Ben White in the midfield at all. Take Dan Byrne out, put Ben White back into the back three, and do a midfield of Davy Proper, Eve Basuma, and Jakob Moder. And then thinking about the two front players a little bit more thoroughly, Neil Mope does not deserve to be in the squad anymore. He has just been far too inefficient in front of goal. So I would keep Alexis McAllister in there because he has been playing so well. And then again, bring Aaron Connolly back into the fix if he's fit, because he does have those great memories. Now, moving away from Brighton briefly, I just have to talk about Frank Lampard and the complete dumpster fire that is Chelsea Football Club. In fact, you want to know something, Chelsea fan? Being the manager of Chelsea Football Club is not a top managerial position in European football anymore. At best, it's a stepping stone job for managers who have aspirations to do bigger and better things elsewhere. 
Let's think about this for a second. In 2018, you bring in Maurizio Sarri, not a top-tier manager, and he overachieves. He wins you the Europa League, and you finish third in the Premier League and qualify for the Champions League, which, considering where Manchester City and Liverpool were at the time, that's a pretty damn good season. And then you let Maurizio Sarri walk. You underappreciated him, and you let him walk. Now, there were some whispers in the wind that he wanted to return to Italy to be closer with his family, but the truth of the matter is that he clashed with the style of the upper management team. In other words, Ibramovich didn't like him. And you, Chelsea fan, you didn't like him. You thought you could do better. You let him walk with the elitist, we don't need you attitude. And then the transfer embargo comes in. And if Chelsea wasn't a top-tier managerial position before, it really wasn't then. What big-name manager in their right mind would want to come in to Chelsea Football Club, deal with Abramovich, and also not be able to bring in any players for two transfer windows? This is a bad look for Abramovich and Peter Cech. So what do they do? They bring in a club legend, Frank Lampard. Why did they do this? Well, primarily to keep the peace. It was a distraction. It was a move for the fans. So the fans couldn't look at Abramovich or Peter Cech or any of the other idiots upstairs. Bringing in Frank Lampard was a PR stunt, and that's it. Imagine having a club legend developing into a solid young manager, and you bring him back to the club to coach, not to put him in a position to succeed, but only when it was most convenient for you, Ibramovich. And then surprise, Frank Lampard overachieves. As it turns out, and as he showed at Derby County, he's a decent coach. He can work with young kids. He can get them buying into the, his system. He can get them playing well. He finishes top four. This is a win-win. The fans love Frank Lampard. Andy Bramovich and Peter Cech have a winning coach. But there were signs that Frank Lampard wasn't the completely developed manager yet. And it had nothing to do with his coaching or his system. It was more to do with his man management. The politics of the club, if you will. I didn't think Frank Lampard was particularly great with the media. I didn't think Frank Lampard was particularly great with the way he handled the Keppa situation, for example. Now, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like Keppa is an easy person to work with because he's clearly not. But I believe that there were things that Frank Lampard could have done better, but not as a coach from a management and from a man management perspective. So Chelsea have on their hands a great young coach who's great with the younger kids, who has good coaching philosophy, who plays a good system, and is learning how to become a manager, learning how to deal with the politics, learning how to cope with the man management side of things. So what does Ibramovich do? He splashes the cash. He brings in big-time personalities. He brings in big players from other leagues. Hey, Chelsea fan, welcome back down to reality. When you go fishing for players in some of these other leagues, they don't always seamlessly fit in. So you have your club legend, young, aspiring, talented coach trying to cope with big personalities from other leagues who need time to adjust to the Premier League. Hell, Timo Werner and Kai Havertz both said that the Premier League was a big test for them, that they weren't used to this kind of style and pressure and intensity in the Bundesliga, that they needed time to adjust. And just like the players needed time to adjust, so did Frank Lampard. He was already in over his head at Chelsea in the first place. He was a good coach. He was good at working with young players. But he had never experienced 
dealing with big-time personalities, big-time egos. So he needed time to adjust to dealing with Timo Werner, Hakim Ziyech, Kai Havertz, Thiago Silva. This was all a new experience for him. But he had earned the right to struggle through it. He had punched you guys into the top four last year when no one expected it. He punched you guys into the top four when he didn't spend any money. So naturally, Ibramovich and Peter Cech don't give him the time. They give him the sack. They gave him the sack. What a joke. So who did they bring in to replace him? Ah, yes. Thomas Tuchel. Well, what do we know about Thomas Tuchel? Well, he was a great coach at Mainz. And then he moved to Dortmund. And he was a decent coach, but he struggled with the politics of a big club in Germany. He got the sack. And then he got picked up at PSG. And again, he couldn't deal with the big personalities. Now, he was dealing with the biggest personality of them all in Neymar. Mbappe had some problems with him. And he struggled dealing with the politics of the club. He struggled dealing with the press, the fan base. Ultimately, he complained to the media. He said, hey, guys, I just want to coach. Let me coach. Don't make me have to do all these other things. Don't make me worry about having to cope with the politics of the upstairs boardroom. So despite doing some pretty good things with PSG, winning everything, taking them on a pretty deep run in the Champions League last year, he gets the boot. And who brings him up? Ibramovich. Ibramovich brings him in, not to coach, but to manage. To manage dealing with his own arrogance and his own naive idiocy. And spoiler alert, it's not going to work. It's not going to work at all. You don't want to know why? Because Thomas Tuchel can't coach. He has to deal with these personalities. He's got to deal with all these big-time players who were under extreme pressure because they're struggling to adapt to the Premier League. And guess what? More than anything else, he's got to manage Ibramovich. He's got to manage Peter Cech. What a dumpster fire that is. What a disgrace Chelsea Football Club is. I hope Thomas Tuchel succeeds. That way he can get out of bougie West London and go coach somewhere better. And as we finish this podcast up, Tottenham haven't looked this vulnerable since that 7-2 thumping they took at the hands of Bayern Munich. Oh, and then how'd their next game in the Premier League go? Ah, yes. Three more points for the Albion, baby. Have it. <laughs>